1: This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's gonna be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta, tomorrow you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com.
2: Hey there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Started back in 2008, Big Think is a kind of online think tank of big ideas from some of the most creative thinkers on the planet. On the Think Again podcast, we revisit these ideas in new and unpredictable ways. Our producers surprised me and my guests with short interview clips from Big Think's archives, ideas that we didn't come here expecting to discuss. In the second year of what's becoming a tradition here on Think Again, this is a mixtape of some of my favorite moments from the past year's shows, things that stuck with me because I thought they were funny or especially wise or simply because of the energy of the conversation. I hope you'll enjoy them as much as I do. Cory Stamper is a lexicographer at Merriam-Webster. On the show, she confirmed that the German word Pumpernickel does indeed mean fart goblin, taught me the also German word Sprachgefühl which means a feeling for words, or as I prefer, word nerdery, and was kind enough to hear my confession of grammatical and syntactic pet peeves. Now is confessional time. I want to talk about my inner prescriptivist and, you know, like, I feel like I have a bit of, I don't know how to say this, but sprachgefühl. How do you say it? Oh,
3: very good. Sprachgefühl.
2: Okay, sprachgefühl, which (laughs) you talk about in the book, which is language sense or word sense and Mm -hmm. a feeling for language. Um, Yeah, I'm a lover of, like, a word nerd from way back. But I feel like that does go hand in hand with a certain amount of peevishness like I'm not as peevish as my mom is on this <laughs> stuff and she's probably listening to this but like I mean hey, ma. She, yeah hey ma you know you gotta admit it Mom. I mean she she would you know in a, in a grocery store she'd be annoyed by the 10 items or less et cetera right but I, I am not free of such such peeves either and I want to share mm-hmm. a couple of my Key peeves with okay. you to get your insights. Unburden here. yourself. Yeah, yeah. So one is in the gap, right? That okay. clothing store. They say, yeah. "Will the following customer please step down?" <laughs> Meaning, will the next customer <laughs> right. please step down? But they've right. all been trained to say that. The
3: following. <laughs> yeah. So
2: that's a new sense of the word "following." Well, is it that's not? just
3: a weird use of the uh, word yeah, "following," okay. right? Because "following" implies that there's something ahead of it. The the. Duck and the following goslings are like that student or the the following students. It's a group. That's right. really what we use it for. is a group. Right. Will the following students report to the principal's office? Yeah, it's
2: like a colon. It's like you know yeah. the one that I'm about to mention or right. whatever. Right.
3: Right. And if it's just one, <laughs> then it's not really following. It is like the next customer. Why yeah, yeah. would they stay away from next?
2: You know what my theory, my pet theory is okay. that this is yeah, this is just sort of. Um, pretentious, like it's exaggerated politeness, right? right. They just think that that's somehow more elegant. Right. You know? Someone right. in management, in corporate, you know, right. decided.
3: Right. Well, <laughs> this, so this this goes along with this, like this. So this is what we all feel in our bones, right? The more syllables that a word has, the right. fancier it is. Right. So why say next when you can say following? That's like two extra syllables. Exactly. Next. Pe- so it must be super fancy.
2: Yeah, paging George Orwell yeah, right. to come and remind us that that is not the case. And uh, also weird.
3: Mm-hmm. Your
2: call will be answered in the order it was received.
3: Oh, yeah, instead of the order in, in which, which it was received. I feel yeah.
2: fussy about that, but I mean still, like, come on, really? In the order. It well, was. so you,
3: if you break that down, your call will be answered. OK. Call will be answered. And then we've got our phrase, in the order. Okay, so that's a sub phrase from answered. Right. And then, it was received is its own phrase. It doesn't tie to, like, does right. that mean call, order? The order it was received? The call it was received?
2: Right, right, none of that right. you makes need, any- Right, you've got to have
3: the in which.
2: Yeah, it doesn't, yeah. none of that right. makes any logical yeah, sense. Yeah, though
3: but, it's such a, I mean, it's, but it's a really, a usage, yeah. yeah, and it's a long sentence. So maybe they were just like, in which sounds fussy. So maybe this is the opposite thing, right? Like, right. Uh, That we don't want to sound really pretentious and we don't want to give this really long sentence. So we'll just drop the words you don't need. And yeah. they were like, yeah, no one needs in which.
2: Yeah, and well, and and it's all it's ubiquitous now. So right. it's 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 a use. I
3: think I'm peeving with you. <laughs> yeah. I don't know that don't I'm like helping it. here. <laughs> I don't like
2: it. No, that's okay. I just wanted to kind of unpack this with you. And then I've, the last one is, which actually isn't really a peeve, but actually something interesting that my wife, who is Turkish, mm-hmm. noticed. You know, because coming from another primary language, I guess right. you tend to notice mm-hmm. things. Like I had never noticed that the phrase just because dot 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 doesn't mean like just because you're famous doesn't mean everybody Mm -hmm. wants your autograph
0: right doesn't
2: make sense exactly (laughs)
3: like
2: (laughs) it should be like the fact that right right right
3: so so what's interesting about this is okay we use because as a conjunction of relationship right we say he went to his room because he had homework to do. Right. So you feel like, oh, you can kind of swap it into anything that's causal. And then right. just, so you can't say, because you're famous, don't think that everyone wants your autograph because they might. So so you sort of have to add this, like, well, just because. Mm.
2: Mm. Yeah, I think my, my mind and is. And you
3: wouldn't say just for the reason that you're famous, right? You can't swap out. Either because or just.
2: Right. Just See, because is the What's persidium. happening to me right now, sometimes this happens, and you talk about this in your book, but like what's happening to me right now is sort of what happened to me sometimes in algebra. Even though words are my thing. <laughs> right. My mind is fuzzing at this explanation, yeah. which I think is a good explanation, but I, right. oh, I don't no. know. It I'm may lost. be
3: it may be a terrible explanation. <laughs> <laughs> You're a lexicographer.
2: I'm sure it's better right. than my explanation. Um, so, Novelist, essayist, and photography critic Teju Cole has a poet's power for capturing the resonant ambiguities of the world. Here he talks about what he thinks is the greatest human invention of all time, one that we're still learning how to use. Okay, this is Virginia Heffernan, who is the author of Magic and Loss. And the clip is titled, Why the Internet is the Greatest Achievement of Any Civilization Ever, which is quite an assertion. Let's see how she backs that up.
0: I see the internet as the great masterpiece of human civilization, to which we're all contributing all the time, the nearly 4 billion of us with wireless access across the globe. And the reason I call it art is that the building blocks of this enterprise, the internet, seem obscure, it seems like this must be the tubes or code or a complex surveillance state or operation of various huge tech companies. In fact, what we're looking at and interacting with are ancient forms, including text and short form text that, you know, for centuries has been known as lyric poetry and uh, two-dimensional images that bear a lot of resemblance to frescoes and even cave drawings. We see on YouTube, we see performance and music that might have belonged to the ancient Greeks. Rather than see us as going to more coarseness and barbarism with the Internet, I see this as, um, as increasing civility, increasing organization, and, incre- and, and, and a, a natural progress of civilization.
2: Do you, what is your kind of, do you have a sense of the kind of historical arc of where we are heading? Well, I mean, I think this
4: question, I, I can't remember if she said the greatest invention or the greatest innovation.
2: Now, first of all, you know, that was the title of the video, which was probably made by our editorial team here. Right. In, in, in nice. In fairness to, to her,
4: she did not actually I don't defend think she that actually particular. She <laughs> uh, said it was that, the greatest that, yeah. invention of humanity. She, she didn't try to, like, die <laughs> on that hill. Um, <laughs> She was praising it very much, but she wasn't saying it was the greatest thing we've ever done.
2: Not necessarily. Just that. Well, just that it's like a natural progression. It's taking us to some. I think she yeah. is.
4: I mean, she ended up walking it a little bit, walking it back a little bit into saying it's actually not that bad because it contains all this great stuff, right? Which is quite different from saying it's the greatest thing we've ever done, right? Um, but I mean, I think that question, what is the greatest thing we've ever done?
0: You That's know, interesting. You could
4: sort of like open that up uh-huh. and just say. You know, we have some sort of obvious candidates like agriculture, cities, which had sort of, of course, had to be invented the first cities, like Çatalhöyük in uh, Anatolia. Turkey, yeah, yeah, and what's now Turkey. Did not have streets. It was just a cluster of buildings <laughs> right next to each other, and they moved by ladders and on rooftops. Oh, wow. So you've got a road in the countryside, right? But for something to be a street, it has to be among buildings. Right. That had to be invented. Sure. So cities are great inventions. They they help us solve many other things. And written music is a very wonderful and peculiar form of magic. And so, of course, it's writing itself. But maybe even deeper than writing is uh, poetry, Uh, whether it's written or not, because of the tremendous help that it has given to humans through the ages not only did we come up with language, but at some point we started to use vast tracts of memorized language to give an account of our place in the universe. Right. So for me that might be the second greatest thing we ever did. Interesting. My
2: understanding, yeah. so when I think of poetry, like what, what poetry means to yeah. me is, it's an antidote, it seems to me that written language in some ways convinced us that we could explain everything um, mm-hmm. and that we tend to mm-hmm. over explain with right. written language or try to explain things or assert things that we can't possibly explain or assert. Right. Whereas poetry now leaves those for, contested yeah. spaces contested. That's right, it
4: argues yeah. for a space for mystery. Yeah. I think it does that. I think it has always done that. It has always been a kind of candle in the dark, really. Mm-hmm. You know, It's a different kind of illumination from Everything else that we're explaining. Sure. But I think what I would actually call our greatest innovation is one that came much later, much, much later, only showed up in the 19th century and then was probably codified in the 20th century, um, which is the idea of universal human rights. Mm-hmm. Is probably, if we can come closer to making good on its promise, it will be the greatest thing we ever did as a species. Yeah. You know the idea that you may not to begin with you may not kill even the enemy without cause which throughout history you've always been able to do anyway right and then gradually through that towards a reduction in the actual fact of enmity itself right. you know so I think the concept of human, universal human rights combined with the uh, the peace movement itself in combination might be the greatest thing we ever did as human beings. Because animals would never ever come up with that. And aeroplanes are great and computers are <laughs> great and everything. But aeroplanes like within three years of the invention of the airplane, Italy's bombing Tunisia from the air. Right. You know, I mean
2: Yeah, yeah. So, so all the other tools can be turned to
4: not not all of them, but I mean they or many te- technical feats. Can just be turned to evil use. Absolutely. Yeah. And and good. But, but the, con- the conceptual victory of actually saying regardless of whether this person looks like me, speaks my language, right. likes me, or any of that stuff, to deprive this person of their life is unjust.
2: I, I um, want to go, I, this is a much longer conversation, but we'll just sure. touch on it. I mean, it's so fraught. I mean, I guess I want to kind of go into this in the context of like what's going on in the Middle East right now, mm-hmm. America's crazy. You write about Obama's drone mm-hmm. program in the book, which like America kinda only knows this much about. Yeah, My fingers recommend. are held a centimeter yeah, apart. Yeah. Only recently has any of the information really been yeah, released. Yeah, the drone playbook
4: just came out, yeah.
2: Yeah, it hasn't been effectively parsed.
4: Nor is it honest.
2: <laughs> I'm sure, yeah. You know. But so we, are in this situation right now i mean i always get into this conversation my wife is turkish you know we talk about the the situation over there we've created all of these enemies we are radicalizing people every day that's right that's right there is also this phenomenon of isis and al-shabaab and uh, al-qaeda and 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 various places etc these are monsters in our world. They exist now, however they were created. Right, but they they do exist. They are monsters. monsters, And the question is, like, what, maybe this is just kind of an American, like, I want to be Superman Mm -hmm. kind of nonsense or something, but I'm just like, what should we do? What should we We do? Should should we do nothing because we fucked up so bad in the past? You know, should we just, like, kind of not be involved?
4: Well, I mean, the first thing I would say is that for certain situations, I'm not speaking to any specific situation right now, First, for certain situations, nothing is actually an option, and right. people seem to be very, very allergic to this idea, but sometimes, actually, you need to do nothing because it's a nightmare that's out of your hands, right. and doing something can make it worse, okay, in certain situations. Sure.
2: Like, you're not the world police. You don't have you, you to necessarily go and, like... Yeah, or
4: even, even the world police, you're not, but even, if the, even the world police doesn't always have to do something. <laughs> right, right. Sometimes you can just let it be, (laughs) you know? Um, You don't have to invigilate every single situation. Mm
5: -hmm.
4: But beyond that, I think what's actually really, really important is to say, what are the messes we're making today that we're going to be kicking ourselves for 10 years from now? Mm -hmm. And I feel like we don't have a mental reset that will allow us to avoid making those mistakes. And we make new kinds so, of mistakes. Right. Like, so, so when we focus on like, what we really need to do now is, def- is defeat ISIS, but you know, 10 years ago we were saying what we really need to do now is defeat al-Qaeda.
2: And, and before and, that, if I may interrupt, it was we need to really defeat communism, which right. is how we armed al-Qaeda in the first place. Exactly. I mean,
4: yeah. So 10 years from now, probably won't be ISIS. It'll be somebody else that is worse and we really need to defeat. I'm not saying we don't need to defeat ISIS. I'm just saying this sort of like mechanical, one-track mind policy-making just makes the world worse and worse and worse. We still have not dealt with the fact that we tend to have extreme disregard for lives that are not American. So that's, that's the way I would approach it. I would say, why do their lives not matter? Why are we at war in Libya right now? We've started bombing in Libya. Who are we bombing? Who are, what's the collateral damage? I mean, who got radicalized last week that we don't even know about? But like next week, if somebody detonates a huge bomb in uh, Madison Square Garden, we'll be like, oh my God, it's ISIS. And then it turns out actually it's not ISIS. It's like somebody in Libya whose like, village got wiped out because we, we have this habit of even going to war without getting congressional approval are like, why do they hate us? Right. Like you're, you're actually bombing somebody's country right now to solve a problem that you think you can bomb your way out of. So, it's so horrible when these things happen here. And maybe going with my, my Pollyanna-ish dream vision <laughs> of peace really being like a serious innovation in our world, maybe we'll get to the point where, when that news came out last week that we had started bombing Libya, the streets should have been full with people saying, the what the hell? Really, again? What oversight? What plan? What reconstruction? You just start bombing because, oh, ISIS is there now? Who yes. approved that? ISIS yeah. is there, and it's also one of the most populous countries in Africa. I mean, it's full of people. So, who else is dying in these bombs? Mm-hmm. And what are you doing to help those people? So, I have a very healthy respect for complexity, which is why. <laughs> I will sometimes just be like, you know, I mean, Obama had a very unpopular approach to the Syria problem, which was to do very little. I would have liked to see him do other things to the side in other ways, but I'm sure glad that we did not go full scale into that war.
2: Yeah, it was a bold move on his part. Because... Against a lot of opposition. Because
4: if you had just like thrown $2 billion in weapons to the good rebels, all of that would be in the hands of ISIS right now.
2: The short-sightedness is a little surprising. I mean, it's just a little surprising. It's not like these presidents don't know history. You know, it's not like, I mean, these people are That's, educated in actually, history. But actually, it's that they don't. They ought to know at least the history of their own country. Like,
4: but even Obama doesn't know history, you know? I mean, they really do not know history. They don't, not only do they not know what has ha- happened in the past, they don't know what's happening right now. You know, I mean, the fact that, you know, George W. Bush and apparently his advisors did not know the difference between Sunni and Shia, extremely deeply consequential. The fact that they did not know that by removing Saddam, you strengthen Iran and Shia militias, it's just dumb. You know, all you needed was one professor who was an expert in the, air, in the region, and I'm not talking about Bernard Lewis, yeah. who had like neocon right, aspirations. Right. You know, so yeah, I should say
2: they know history from the perspective of American exceptionalism and from the perspective. And that is of, it. Yeah. Nothing
4: yeah. like fully grounded that actually takes gives proper credence to people. I mean, if we knew history, we would not be bombing yeah. Libya right now. We would not be bombing Pakistan or, or Yemen. Yeah. So there was it's, something it's in hilarious. your
2: in your book where you're, you're talking about James Baldwin. Yeah, I think um, being in Switzerland. Yes, that's right and he he kind of rattles off a list of the cultural artifacts of you know of, west yeah, western, western europe europe and you point out in kind of unpacking that you point out art and statuary and so forth from africa i guess from yes yeah west africa west africa yeah, it, that i was completely unaware of yes, not yeah. surprisingly yeah. considering that that's your point yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. but you're saying that you know like I don't know how many years ago are we talking about is this yeah. centuries and centuries yeah, ago Yeah the 14th century that you have this century, sophisticated yeah. evolved yeah. you know forms of art that that are just but, not kind of considered when that's you That's know, right and Western those techniques
4: mind. were not even present in Renaissance Europe they had to be brought back Yeah they had been known in ancient Greece but then they'd been lost and meanwhile in 13th 12th 13th 14th century West Africa like this very intricate bronze casting and hyper-realistic sculptures yeah. were present. Yeah. People don't think about that. No, we don't you know, know we, about it at we all. Certainly don't, uh, we certainly don't associate African sculpture with ancient hyper-realism. But no, it's, it's certainly there. we
2: yeah. associate it with tchotchkes that people bring Right. right. safari. Ex- precisely.
4: I so, I mean, t- t- sort, of, sort of taking the lives of others seriously is just one of the foundational ethical positions uh, that... The other is as you are. And that is what we have sort of designed our constitution around. Right. And I think we need to make it truly international. I find the American uh, presidential election season very, very tedious, in part because it is about American exceptionalism. The idea On both that, sides, yeah. Yeah, that these sort of these liberal, liberal concepts of human rights and freedom and individual autonomy only apply to people who happen to have an American passport.
2: George Saunders is one of my favorite writers, period, living or dead. His 2017 novel, Lincoln in the Bardo, was unlike anything I've ever read. Like another hero of mine, David Foster Wallace, he's also sagely on the subject of how to live a good life. This is on Mark Goodman, who is a sort of tech expert guy, talking about cyborgs Hmm. and medical implant hacking.
6: I'm for it.
1: A subset of the Internet of Things is a whole category of medical devices. We have wearables, things like the Fitbit. We have embeddables. We have implantables, things like um, diabetic pumps, for example, Uh, internet-enabled defibrillators implanted in our chest, so uh, implantable defibrillators, pacemakers, and the like. We have brain-computer interface. And now we're even creating pills that are internet-enabled so that you can swallow a pill, goes into your stomach, the pill's computer is powered by your stomach acid and it can control the le- the release of medicine, how much medicine is released over time. So. We are slowly but surely becoming cyborgs. Uh, I know it sounds like science fiction, but if you think about it, most people are walking around with their cell phone in their pocket or in their hand 24/7. When people go to sleep, they put it on their their nightstand. So slowly but surely computers are replacing our own cognitive abilities to an extent. When I was younger, I used to know by memory the phone numbers of all of my friends because there were no cell phones with all these little address books. Today, we just automatically dump that data into our cell phone and just call it up on demand, the same with our address book and the like. So that cell phone, though currently outside of our body, means that's kind of the first step towards us uh, theoretically becoming cyborgs. The next step, of course, will be implanting these devices into us. There are people, uh, several researchers, including one out of Cambridge in the UK, that have implanted RFID chips underneath their skin for years, these people are called body modders, and they will go out there and use those RFID chips to open up the uh, security door in their office place to pay for goods and services, so you can actually do that now. So there is a whole movement of people who are quite interested. It's sort of underground these days it's if you it's sort of the next generation of piercing right there's a whole community around piercing and tattooing and the next generation of that is to implant these computer devices in our skin under our skin that give us new forms of senses for example magnets whole movement of people put magnets under their skin and they have now created a sixth sense that the rest of us don't have which is that they can actually explore magnetism in our environment
6: There's a great American writer named Tom McGuane, and at the, at the beginning of one of his books, there's a, an epigraph that I, I always misquote, but the way I remember it is uh, something like, man is magnificently well-made and enthusiastically lives the life that is being lived. You know, So part of me thinks, yeah, that was, sure, of course. If the potential exists, we'll, we'll do it. Oh, yeah. And, and uh, then my mind goes to say, well, does it does it change anything about our humanity? And I kind of think not, you know? I mean, if, if the right. this thing we've been talking about with your, the big human problem is that we think we're separate from everything, yeah. but actually we're not, and we think we're permanent, we're not. Probably will always be a, an issue. The only thing that I think is, you know, in the way that technology does, the idea of implanting a chip in your arm is gonna seem so trite in five years or 10 years. And I would imagine what we'll be able to do is go in to the brain and micromanage that. that that's an interesting thing then, because yeah. let's say that someone said to you, you know, come, have a little a little operation, and I can make you the best day in your life the most happiest the happiest you've ever been. I can give you that every day, right do you do it or not you know? well
2: and so and yeah, and I think yeah. about this stuff a lot because I think my default you know I, a, I think my default is a little bit of a like pessimistic humanistic slant on this, which mm. I know is totally biased, you mm. know where I'm just like, ah, no, like humans are supposed to be messy, let's not fix everything, yeah, yeah. you know whatever. But I guess what concerns me is that that we're getting to where we don't even have the ability to evaluate mm. what is happening and whether or not it's a good thing. Yeah. I mean, this stuff about the addictiveness of our devices—you yeah. know, we're all walking around like staring at our phones. I don't think we're even remotely able to get the big picture yeah. on what's going on with us. Yeah, and that,
6: and that I think, I, I, as a late adapter, I can guarantee it, <laughs> it, it, it alters brain chemistry. I mean, my reading, my reading comprehension dropped. Within the first two weeks, I got a cell phone. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, no, and I knew that from baselining against certain texts that I always Just read. It's because
2: of attention or whatever. Something. I good. don't know. I don't yeah. actually know. I think right. it's
6: attention, yeah. I think yeah. it's that, that idea that the, that the next thrill is close, you know, that kind of thing. Right, right. I, you know, part, part of my, I learned this from Chekhov, actually, reading Chekhov. Okay. I think one of the highest states of mind we can occupy is when we have a couple, let's say, two fully articulated, beautifully rendered truths contradicting each other that are hanging in the mind at the same time. Yes. So for example, with this stuff, I think you're absolutely right. We, we have lost our ability to, uh, I mean, these devices are, they, they interfere. They interfere with what human beings have been doing for a thousand years. I agree with that. On the other hand, the holy phrase, on the other hand, that's always been the case. There's always been some technology that was messing with us. Indeed. Yeah, yeah. I'm in favor of what we might call a meditative stance, which means, do we, okay, what's the sacred? The sacred is, I think, First, having some idea of what the highest state you've ever been in. Mm-hmm. And just always remembering that you were once there, mm-hmm. and then that you're kind of va- vaguely trying to get back to it. That's one thing. The second thing is this idea of saying, every so often, I'm going to take a moment to uh, evaluate. I'm going to get off devices for a week, and just see what happens. Not judge it, but just see. If if you see, in fact, that your re- comprehension goes up and you're happier, it doesn't mean you can't go back. You can but you've sort of uh, taken a second to look at stuff. And the reason I say it's meditative is because in meditation and in prayer and in writing, that's kind of what you're doing. You're sort of saying, let me slow things down a little bit. Let me see how much of this world is my mind, how much of it is world, how much of it is... So just to sort of take that evaluative second. That seems to me like good human hygiene in whatever form you do it.
2: Right, right, yeah. No, that makes sense. In part, it's like, Obeying those instincts that are saying to yourself like well, there's something here that I'm not entirely comfortable with. yeah And then as you said, yeah, like knowing what you want, like what is it that is the best of that life has yeah. to offer? Yeah. For example, the experience of you know writing when it's going really well, is my environment and the way that I'm living conducive Conducing to producing to that. that thing? You right. know? Yeah,
6: yeah. Just I mean, it's funny. Just that little uh-huh. that little second of going, wait a minute, what am <laughs> I, what am I doing? Right. It's pretty, pretty good. <laughs> right. and, but right. but at the pace that we go, you know, it, it's pretty hard to to get. Yeah,
2: that. there's the fear that humanity is increasingly going to be trapped within bubbles that it's not even aware yeah. of or whatever. But you know, that may or may not be the case. You the know? funny
6: thing is that a lot of the materialist, what I call the materialist project, which I think is a corporatist. Not it's not a conspiracy, but it's sort of just happening to us. Right. Somehow that thing, it causes us to engage in activities with actually, which actually reinforce itself. Yes. You know, which is weird. I don't. It's almost because like it's the, to their
2: benefit that we be addicted somehow. To the almost thing, like so the
6: Borg. It doesn't know that it's doing that, but yeah, it does yeah. it sort of. You know. But the other thing that this this uh, made me think is I has a story called Escape from Spiderhead. Okay. And in that story, that the, the shtick was that they could give you a drug that would alter your verbal patterns. Right. And I really like that thought that, you know, if we figured out brain cyborgism and uh, could increase your level of articulateness by 40%, <laughs> right. you're a different person or decrease it or decrease it. Yeah, yeah. And we all know that from when we're tired you know you get less articulate and your world shrinks a little bit you know so that's a, that's a question Do, if someone But then could, who
2: knows you become you know three times more articulate and then you become four times worse at listening yeah no possibly, exactly you know? exactly
6: <laughs> yeah that's right you become a pundit <laughs> <laughs> the worst yeah. of all fates <laughs> yeah.
2: Talking to Slovenian philosopher Slavoj Žižek is like riding the cyclone, that old wooden roller coaster at Coney Island. A lot of fun, even if sometimes you think you might break something. So your issue, as I understand it from the book, is with this sort of tepid alliance of global capitalism, like that issues like LGBT rights and whatever get subsumed into this giant global octopus of global
8: capitalism. Yeah, and it works, and it works in the sense of that's the big problem I have with some feminists and so on, where I claim, to put it in this bombastic Marxist (laughs) terms, the predominant ideology of today's global capitalism in the developed Western countries is no longer patriarchy and so on. It's precisely this type of, let's call it, watered-down Judith Butler, you know. Uh, Judith Butler, okay. but watered down, right. Right? in the sense of this common perception of, let's not have a transfixed identity, we need the freedom to redefine ourselves, to reinvent ourselves, right. and this is why also LGBT+, plus fits it perfectly this idea no fixed divisions we always reconstruct ourselves redefine ourselves and so on and and you argue that that's sort of easily easily commodified no i'm here not so much commodified but i'm saying even for not only that it is easily appropriated but that it is fundamentally the Ideology of today's global capitalism.
2: I know now you're Oh, so identity politics
8: equals global capitalism. Wait Hmm. a minute. No, it's uh, no. You know in what sense equals? If you deprive identity politics of its social edge, and that's the whole artistry of American mainstream politics. Okay. To be for identity politics to deprive it of its more radical social edge. So that, for example, that's, I see. that's why I criticize the notion of tolerance. Mm-hmm. Tolerance means instead of political struggle, which is intolerant, right. the problem becomes I'm who I am, you are who I am, we should learn to tolerate each other, and so on and so on. Yeah. This is not what even right-wing authentic politics is. Authentic politics is I have a global vision which is different for yours. Let's fight without killing each other. But let's fight radically to the end.
2: One really interesting thing Mm. in your book Mm. is the chapter on the stranger. Um, And this brings me to that. The idea of the neighbor and the chapter is called The Limits of Neighborhood. And you quote another writer and essentially say that Creepiness is the modern definition uh, or the modern yeah. sort of core of the neighbor. And you say, you basically say we shouldn't try and within this refugee crisis and other other yeah. global issues, we shouldn't try to sentimentally sympathize or empathize with the pain of others,
8: but we should no, r- I'm looking, recognize our yeah.
2: alienation from them yeah. and No, ourselves. I'm trying to
8: say something else. I, okay. if you, right. I also quote it in the book. Okay. For example, you know, often we encounter in politics, for me at least, utter stupidities <laughs> yes. which appear as wisdom. And I quote one you may remember, which is enemy, is someone to whose story we were not able or ready to listen to. Right, no. right. Okay, it sounds deep, and it's understandable. Like, you have your own vision. I don't care it. I stigmatize you as the enemy. I don't want to hear your side of the story. Sorry, but this Wisdom has great limitations. Would you also say, for example, that Hitler was our enemy because we were not ready to listen? No, there are real enemies. Okay. Where the more you listen to his story, the more you should hate him. But speaking as one
2: of these liberals that you're sort of writing against in that section, because I think think
8: that's me, I think that's me. Listen, Um, I can tell you something with all my friendship. uh, When we the people take over, you go to Gulag, but I, <laughs> you told me I will arrange that oh. you will get cigarettes and whiskey there. You will not suffer too much. Oh, okay, let's excellent, go excellent, excellent. So yeah. it will be sort of an oligarchy in a way. Oligarchy. Okay, yeah, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> um, so, but, but I am not saying we should not understand our neighbor and so on. I'm just saying there is a limit and true tolerance is not this. I should absolutely understand you. Right. True tolerance is I don't understand you because, as I put it cynically, I think, in the book, you can say that I even understand myself. Myself, Yeah, true tolerance for me is not, I should understand all your myths and so on. True tolerance, is we are in one of these big, around Washington Square, these high uh, condominiums and so on. And my ideal is to live there. Next apartment is an African-American, next apartment an Indian, an Arab, hardline Jew, Latino-American, and We have polite relations, maybe, maybe not, I become friendly with some of them, but we fully respect each other with all the differences that's almost my ideal society. I don't like this absolute pressure. I must understand you to the end. No, the true miss, the true even the true love is this. The true love. Now I'm moving, but it's a good parallel, I think, to personal level. Okay. I never like this idea of total love. We think like one and so on. That's right. horrible. In true love, you leave to your beloved a certain autonomy. You know, you cannot penetrate her not sexually, yeah. but <laughs> mentally totally and so on so why this obsession with understanding the other to the end that's not the problem and I think the problem problem is that even if we don't at this level of ways of life understand each other we should build a common front so my idea is look I always use this wonderful example you remember Tahrir Square Egypt demonstrations okay Till that point, it was always popular to say, but can we understand Egyptians? Are they mature for democracy? When that happened, all of a sudden, all those petty problems of multiculturalism, do we understand them, disappeared, and we were not wrong. We knew now we are on the same side. This is our third struggle. I I like those moments. I don't think, as some liberal cynics would have said, bad liberals, now, not you, that this is just just an illusion. No, it's not an illusion. This is authentic universality, which is always the universality of a struggle. Not that UNESCO book universality where all world world cultures are described as big contributions to world humanity. I believe in a struggling universality. Mm. We have problems. Indians have problems. Arabs have problems. Can we form a united front. Okay, I, so I totally get that on, the, but I, go uh, to on the... No, I get it on the political level and the
2: cultural level. I understand that we can't even understand ourselves, mm-hmm. let alone
8: understand another mm-hmm. person fully. I also... Or communities, I, I, an, y- also communities. One community, one way of life. Right, right. Another. And
2: I also understand something that you're saying, which I think is really interesting which is that when we attempt to fully understand one another, what we essentially do is impress a set of assumptions yes, upon absolutely. the other, yes. which then when they don't meet those assumptions, yes. we get
8: pissed off and we get angry or insulted this or is for whatever. Typical know. with uh, African-Americans or with, uh, with uh, Native Americans. Right. For example, how often I found my friends celebrating uh, blacks, African-Americans as wonderful, their music, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But then when you meet, as every social group has it, a more brutal side, whatever, they get in total panic. You know, all of a sudden sure. this understand. You know what's the problem, if I may use my old metaphor? In the same way that in today's consumerism, we like to get a product without its rough element. Right. We like coffee without caffeine, beer without alcohol, sausage without fat. We like to get a neighbor, an ethnic other, without its dark side. A kind of a purified, decaffeinated neighbor, I call them, you know.
2: Jennifer Doudna was a mild-mannered biologist studying bacterial immune systems when her lab created a gene editing technology, CRISPR-Cas9, that will likely change the entire evolutionary course of life on Earth. Now she's trying to grapple with the ethical implications of that discovery. One of the big concerns here and one of the things that you've really focused on is the editing of the the idea of of germline editing, so which is like basically a, a, you know, uh, I don't know at what point in the replication process, but before you have a, a viable embryo, editing human genes such that they can then be transmitted to the next generation. What are some, I mean, there are so many issues around that, but what are some of the main concerns?
5: Right. Well, first of all, I think it's important to understand that this is already being done in animals right. routinely, right? So people are making new strains of mice to, to use to study human disease using that kind of strategy, and, and certainly many other kinds of animals as well, also in plants, you know. Gotcha. But fairly early on in the development of this technology, you know, there was a publication where a research group had used the CRISPR technology to do what we call germline editing in monkey embryos and right. had created monkeys that had genetic modifications that were transmissible to future generations. And these monkeys were otherwise completely normal, they just had this this genetic little what, change. What,
2: what, what was up with the monkeys? What was the difference? Like, was uh, it anything well, visible? or No, it wasn't. Yeah, it okay. was,
5: nope, they were changing a gene in the liver okay. uh, of these monkeys and they could detect it by DNA sequencing, okay. you know.
2: Something subtle. Yeah. Something
5: subtle. But nonetheless, that was kind of the for me the one of the, the real um, uh, you know moments, I guess when I felt like you know this is uh, moving pretty darn fast and you know I thought to myself, you know what would prevent anyone today from doing that in human embryos? It seemed like nothing in principle. yeah And so that was really a big motivator for me to get out and, and, and start discussing this more publicly. and I we ended up convening a meeting in early 2015 with a few scientists. We had about just just around 20 scientists that got together in the Napa Valley to discuss this very issue. We brought in uh, people that had been involved in the early ethical discussions around molecular cloning back in the 1970s, Paul Berg and and David Baltimore, uh, two Nobel laureates who were very eminent scientists and had thought deeply about these kinds of issues with respect to molecular cloning. And so it was great to have their their uh, their perspective, and, and uh, it was a very timely. It turned out because just a few months later, there was right. publication of the first work that was done in human embryos using uh, the CRISPR technology, and it was a group using non-viable embryos, so they weren't making CRISPR babies or right. anything. But nonetheless, it was sort of the you know the first indication that sure enough, you know, people were already headed in that direction.
2: Yeah, and you and you say I think that like in the end you're not like it's not that you're categorically forever against necessarily nice. germline editing. For example, I don't know, like if there were a heritable cancer, right, that we knew that we could eliminate. And, and the other tricky bit, of course, is that as you point out in the book, we don't know, there are so many things, like we don't know what the ancillary effects might be, right? You edit one thing out and then, oh, guess what? Some other totally unexplained you know, problem occurs or an immunity that you had to something else is gone, right? Yeah, yeah. But, but theoretically, assuming there were a good enough sense of control and that we decided that we like ethically had to do it because can't let that person grow up and get that cancer, like okay, but we, have to, we just have to really proceed with, with caution and not end up hopefully also with like vanity editing, like let's make ourselves sexier. Or something stupid like that.
5: Yeah, I think, (laughs) well, you know, yeah, I mean, I think with any technology, right, there's sort of a cost benefit that you have to do. Right. And there's a risk associated with doing this, right? Right. And so you'd have to ask is it worth that sort of enhancement uh, with the risk of potentially introducing harmful uh, changes? Right. And, you know, and then there's all, of course, the, Many, many associated questions, who who decides the answer to that, who pays for it, yeah, yeah. who gets access to it, should companies make money doing this, um, right. what happens when something goes wrong, who is responsible, you know, all those kinds of questions. And
2: as you point out, I mean, like, should it become viable to, assuming we could even figure out what exactly would control for, again, I'm going to use the blunt term, sexiness, who would first have access to that your insurance probably would not pay for it so therefore it would be wealthy people and therefore we you know you are then encoding genetically differences you know strata into society right
5: yeah or In, one divisions. person's definition of sexy which might not right, be right, other right there's right there's that so too yeah yeah right so i think huge pandora's box yeah. <laughs> huge pandora's box and i think the whole question of of yeah sort of access and who who decides who regulates How do we ensure that there's equitable access to this kind of technology? I think those are all things that really need to be considered.
2: Are you optimistic at this point? I mean, in all honesty, like having had the conferences, you know, been to the conferences, seeing what's going on in terms of the scramble of industry to get its hands on this technology, you know, the dollar signs that are attached to it, the sort of international differences in regulation. Are you optimistic about the ability to control this in the ways that you'd like to, that you think it ought to be?
4: Controlled.
5: Well, I, I sort of think that we're looking at sort of a three-legged stool situation, right. right? One leg of the stool is, uh, you know, the desire of, uh, on the part of companies to, you know, forge ahead and do things that are going to make money, right. uh, or, or on the part of scientists who maybe want to be famous, maybe they want to be the first person to make a CRISPR baby, you know, right? right and sure. and get the, have the associated uh, fame around that. Uh, so there's, there's that leg, then there's the leg that, that is sort of the caution, even for companies and, and, and certainly for scientists, realizing that you know, if you do something that is irresponsible in some way or unethical, you might get sued, uh, you, might get sued right. you, might, you might lose your reputation, right. uh, you might not be able to do research in the future, people might not respect you, you know, all those sorts of things. Right? And that's true for individuals and companies, it's also true for countries. Right, whole, whole societies sure. who want to be seen in a respectful uh, light and they don't want to have uh, something reflected negatively. And then the third leg of the stool is frankly, I think, at least I hope, is sort of the desire to do good. You know, right. the desire to see new technology really used to solve real problems that have been intractable in the past. Right. And so we've got those three forces that are kind of intersecting in an interesting way. And Indeed. how they will sort of balance out and you know, will there be uh, bad actors who say, "Well, I don't care what people think. I'm going to forge ahead and offer couples the chance to make CRISPR babies." Uh, right. I can't say there won't be, but I do think that there's an, there, there's an interesting count, counterbalancing forces right now that might at least make that less likely.
2: Yeah, I'd like to think that, on balance, humanity would take the sort of the better road. I mean, I you know, I. I it's easy to be cynical about, about humanity sometimes, but, but, um, but, I'd, but I'd like to think that, you know, look, I mean, the immense potential health benefits, the, you know, there, there are just so many ways that the technology can be used for good um, that hopefully, that the, like, numerically, that will outweigh the stupid, right?
5: That's what we have. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we have to try. <laughs> what else can we do? Indeed, yeah. You, yeah, and
2: you're actively trying that all over the world, so that's, that's great. Actor Timothy Spall is a longtime favorite of mine from the films of Mike Lee, including Secrets and Lies. One of the only sad things about hosting Think Again is that conversations like this one have to end. This first one is, it is called The Psychology of Solitude. Find meaning mental health in the beauty of silence. Scott Barry Kaufman, who's the director of something called the Imagination Institute at the University of Pennsylvania.
9: A lot of people fear solitude, yet the great psychiatrist Wincott said that the capacity for solitude is one of the greatest markers of psychological health. So if you can develop your capacity for solitude, that means that you are okay being alone with yourself. As Cal Newport, who wrote the book Deep Work, notes, some of the most meaningful things in our life we do in our life that add unique value to the world um, that are not replicable as he puts it um, are operate under the conditions uh, that are completely distraction free where we try to eliminate as much as possible that that ringing uh, you know on our phone that we have new text or we have a new email and Um, Or looking and going Facebook and checking likes, so disconnecting from the outside world as much as possible and and get in a situation where we're in complete solitude, that we can get completely immersed in and really follow through to completion, something in a very deep way, Um, uh, he argues, that is very conducive to a good life as well as a meaningful life. It doesn't mean that if you develop your capacity for solitude that you're a misanthrope. Is what I want to say. It doesn't mean that. That's a false dichotomy. You can um, develop your capacity fully for optimal deep work, but um, but you can also develop your capacity to collaborate with others so that once you come up with ideas or generate things that are deep, you can then share and get feedback and then go back. It's a constant process, constant cyclical process where you go back and forth between. Um, getting feedback from the world and seeing what your sense of audience is very important to know what your sense of audience. Get a sense of your audience when you're producing a creative work, but it's also very important to have moments where you um, go into solitude and you um, um, and you embrace and uh, embrace the the beauty of of silence.
10: I completely agree with them and in a sense you know there's all sorts of agencies all sorts of ways of of achieving that isn't there I mean you could actually yeah, yeah. say that quiet simple prayer is a form of silence sure uh, or meditation is a form of silence Do you meditate? You are, well I you know I was gonna say I was gonna confess I was gonna fess up that, yeah fess up man. I mean I don't um, <laughs> I don't uh, have any, I don't attach to any church or anything like that. Yeah, but yeah. The, where I live in the centre of London, in Old London, there's lots of old churches, and there's one in particular. And I was ill; I was seriously ill uh, yeah. 20 years ago. I came here and I nearly died. So you go to a strange places. But what I do, what I like about, and in relation to what this gentleman just said, is that um, I often will just walk in a church. I don't go to any services. I don't, I don't take part of any of that. But what I like about a church particularly old churches and particularly some of them are a thousand years old around where i live yeah there is a sense of silence there is a sense of quietitude and there's a sense of um freedom movement away and it could be right by a massively main road in central london all of a sudden you walk into it it might be psychological but there is is—it's moved away from the cut and thrust from it's moved away from politics it's moved away from your And all of a sudden you're sitting there and you might say this is the time to ask for something or this is the time to just cry or this is the time just to say I'm sorry or this is the time to take stock. What this gentleman is saying is that we all need to take stock. Now I understand that's actually much harder than we like to think because also in the modern world we are bombarded from the point we are born to the point we are dead by imagery and influence. I mean, it occurred to me recently, about not so long as through 300 years ago, If you lived in a small part, in a region, or a small town, and you'd only have probably really encountered about 500 people in your life. Right. 500 people right. would never, you people would never move more than 20 miles.
2: Yeah, right? and you get to know them
10: pretty well. Yeah, you I get guess. to know <laughs> yeah. them. And yeah. now, with, by the time you're, you can even speak through imagery, you know, listening to sound, listening to people talk, watching television, screens, screens constantly. Yeah, yeah. You've encountered a billion little fragments of humanity, all that aren't people for a start, which is a bit worrying, but that, that will give you this desire to want to go, what is it, where is it, where is it, where is it, where is it? Where is it? Yeah, 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 Where are we, what are we after? So that taking stock sometimes, but then again, what the terrible thing is, when you do take stock, you are left on your own and you might come to the conclusion that you really aren't that important. Yeah. You really aren't that important. <laughs> and I think, actually, That's probably it's a, a good really, thing. <laughs> really good thing. <laughs>
4: yeah.
10: Not it's segueing into self loathing, like, I'm not that important, I'm a piece of shit, what have I done? But sometimes, yeah. sometimes low self worth has to be recognised because it can create a lot of problems. But I, I often think, you know, I all think about all sorts of weird things, but is the human condition to be still quiet and reflective and understand solitude because it occurred to me at the moment that a sperm leaves a man's penis and it enters the female Mm -hmm. track heading towards to fertilize an egg there's millions of them and they're all killing each other to get there yeah yeah to fertilize the egg social, competitive, yeah. yeah so absolutely. <laughs> so in his microcosm, the ants and so on and so forth, these are non-cognitive creatures, are all at it. Yeah. They don't sit still, you know, you don't see a, you know, everybody's at something or other, just so that, when I suppose the human brain, we're all, you know, animals, the human brain has developed itself to expect, you know, because we have a, a, an understanding of our consequences of our action, it's overdeveloped our desire, to find out where we're from. A, uh, you know, a yeah, dog yeah. doesn't give a fuck whether it's a dog <laughs> or not, I don't know. You know, as far as we know, yeah, long yeah, yeah. gets. we am going to have a, a crap and have something to eat and a friend, it's all right. You know? yeah. I mean, really, you know, so it's, there's a, to me, I, but I do think maybe that that solitude actually, you know, cut off the desire. Cut off desire is a big thing. I suppose, I don't know Buddhism, but it says stop wanting things all the time. We all Stop want something. Stop being a something. victim
2: of things, desires that are pulling you in every yeah, direction. Yeah, we want um, it.
10: We yeah. want things all the time. We want to, and it's, you know, buyer's remorse as well. You get something, you desire it. I was talking about it the other day in rehearsal. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, I'll do this thing about a big jewelry heist. And actually, and actually, once they've got it, the problem, once they've got it, was they didn't know what to do with it, so they got it. It's a bit like you, you, you yearn. You yearn for a, a, mm. a beautiful piece of electronical kit. Right. You yearn it, you research it, They're like a flat screen television, smart television. You get it, you want it, a box arrives. You open it up and the instruction book's the size of a Dostoevsky <laughs> novel. You want to cry? I do because I don't know how to make this thing work. I've got it now. What do I do
2: with it? And even if you, even once you do make things work, I mean, they've done psychological studies, and basically, basically, it doesn't make you anywhere near as happy as you no. thought it was going to. Now, it, the result can't be. I mean, Buddhists get there, but like for me, the result can't be like okay. Therefore, we must never want anything. Mm. But. I do think that it's true that, like, what solitude maybe can teach you is to not be basically not to be in the middle of this maelstrom yeah. of desires that are leading you in one direction or another with anxiety and desire and excitement and whatever, and to be, to be the one making more of the decisions. You yeah, know?
10: stop. Yeah. yeah, just stop. Switch yourself off. <laughs> yeah, just yeah. go, hang on a minute. Yeah, yeah. Unhook the batteries of desire for two seconds. Yeah. And just go, actually. Oh, he's all right for a minute, you know? When I was seriously ill, I Yeah, I, I was read shud- that
2: you had like a 60, 40 chance. That yeah, yeah,
10: and I, I'm part of the cure was you have to get, it worked, but you have to stay in a room because they give you something that makes you have no immune system, so they don't, you know. And then you get, you know, it goes on for about, went on for about six months on and off, and you know, you start feeling removed from the world. You, I'd look out my window and see people going around and about, and um, think, what are they doing, huh? you know, and started being slightly affronted by the audacity of normality, seeing people, what, <laughs> what are you doing, going, where are you going? Slow down, yeah. Yeah, where are you going? Where <laughs> What? You, what, you, what, you, what you, you're getting off a bus and going over to, because I was in here stigmatized <laughs> by, you know, trying to fight for my life. This normalness became weird to me. Yeah, yeah. And then when I came out and I was starting to recover a bit, I remember this is really one of the only first, it was a massive, to a certain degree. I, I went to my local park and I sat, I felt pretty shit. You know, I didn't feel well because I'd been for a massive treatment. Yeah, it yeah. got rid of the problem, but I was weakened by it. And I sat in this park, and I looked at the tree, and I just looked at this tree, it's blowing a bit. I thought, that'll do, that would do. Yeah, yeah. This is me, alive, <laughs> sitting in here, not dead, looking at a tree, thinking, that's all right. And
2: that wraps up another episode of Think Again. If you are hungry for more conversation, I urge you to join us on our Facebook group. It's called Friends of Think Again. You can just type that into the search field on Facebook and I will let you in. We'll be back next week with another surprising conversation and I hope you can join us.